At this time in history, we are called upon to make great changes that affect the environment. A green policy is increasingly urgent and the need to develop and implement it is recognized by all. The European Commission itself a few years ago published the Green New Deal and launched the theme of ecological transition. This team aims to change towards a way of producing and using the planet's resources by stopping the work of destruction that we have been carrying out for more than a century. We cannot rely any longer on food systems based on fossil fuels and on industrial agriculture. This old system that we should abandon has been shaped by big corporations, and these are the same corporations that are now turning to greenwashing techniques. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelecter. Sacula Ijaia. Food. Change. Slow food. The podcast. And these few and big companies that have immense power over the food that we eat, the health of our planet, our environment, and of course they need to be challenged, are the food barons. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On our podcast, we meet change makers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This episode is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, where we dissect the political debates linked to the greatest challenges food and agriculture are facing. Today, I'm stepping in for Alice Poiron, who is normally the host of the series. We're going to focus our conversation on greenwashing. What is it exactly? Who is behind it? How does it work and what can we do to face it? I'm delighted to carry out today's discussion with two experts on the topic of greenwashing. Hazel Healy is the Smogs UK editor. She's also a freelance writer and a broadcaster specializing in stories about food justice, climate and migration. Hazel recently published, together with Rachel Sherrington, the article A Guide to Six Greenwashing Terms Big Ag is Bringing to COP28. This article was published on The Smog, an independent and investigative website. The second guest of today is Kavya Chowdhury. Kavya is from India and works as a researcher with ETC, the Action Group on Erosion, Technology and Concentration. ETC Group is a small international research and action collective committed to social and environmental justice, human rights and the defense of just and ecological agri-food systems. So now let's get started with our conversation. So welcome, Hazel, to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First of all, I will interview Hazel Healy, editor at The Smog UK, who will give us an overview on how large corporations are practicing greenwashing, making it appear that they are committed to finding solutions to environmental crises for which they are largely responsible. And this happens in large institutional meetings, such as at the COP on climate. And so before starting our conversation, um, particularly on the article, I would like to ask you maybe if you could give us your definition of greenwashing. Yes, so greenwashing for me is when there's a difference between the things that a company is saying about itself and the reality of their operations. And, you know, a lot of the work that Desmog does is finding out what that difference is and trying to hold those companies kind of accountable to the green promises that they make publicly. 
So greenwashing can be in the form of advertising. You know, one really nice example is when, you know, oil and gas companies use renewable energy in all their adverts, but actually 98% of their portfolio is still invested in fossil fuels. That's like a nice Mm. clean cut example. But I think there are other more, I guess, hazy examples of greenwashing where there are green principles pledged, there are statements that are made, but there's no clear evidence of meaningful action. Um, so the article is super interesting. There is a lot of information and in particular, I like that you take uh, different concepts or like keywords that the uh, agribusiness, like these big companies are using uh, as a form of greenwashing. And then you explain what actually it means in reality. So could you um, debunk for us some of these key concepts that the food companies are using in the debate at the climate summit? Yes, yeah, so we took the six phrases that we felt we, we were hearing and we were reading that kind of big food and farming companies were using in, in relation to climate change and talking about um, emissions and their role in kind of reaching net zero. Um, and we boiled it down to six. I think I might start with the first two One of those is a tricky one, it's emissions intensity. So big polluters like, you know, in the fossil fuel industry before them, you know, big agricultural companies have kind of cottoned on to this same idea that they will, you know, publicize their plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions. But actually, if you read the small print, um, often they're just talking about fewer emissions per tonne or per kilo or per unit of milk, rather than targets to reduce it after overall. So, you know, that is a, a sleight of hand because really emissions intensity is about also about productivity and efficiency, but that's, you know, climate change is about reductions in overall outputs of, of gas, you know, particularly when it comes to meat and dairy, we're thinking about methane. Um, so if you're producing more and more milk more efficiently, that is not going to decrease the volume of methane um, of in the atmosphere. Um, and I think, you know, what we noticed is that a lot of the companies that are talking about emissions intensity are actually, you know, the most polluting companies. Um, and it's a way that allows them to put the focus on, you know, less efficient operations, say, in Kenya, for example. And say, oh, well, in the global south, these pastoral systems are very inefficient Uh, but actually, <laughs> if you look at the volume of methane that some of these companies are single-handedly producing, you know, the problem isn't Kenya, right? The problem is like, you know, uh, big companies in in the US and you know, other parts of the world, uh, also New Zealand. And this is a way, you know, to keep dietary change or cuts in production completely out of the conversation. So that's what emissions intensity displaces there. And then a second term, which is really closely linked to emissions intensity, often goes together, is, is the idea of efficiency. And that's really, you know, a way to kind of reassure policymakers that things can carry on as they are, but everything will just be done more efficiently. So no extra damage will be done. So that 
um, argument is used a lot by fertilizer companies, which a lot of fertilizers are made from natural gas, which I think you know perhaps most people aren't aware of. Um, and if you take nitrogen fertilizer, for example, that emits more than commercial aviation. So these companies and farming practices have stayed quite below the radar, I think, but that's changing. And and they push very strongly um, for the idea of just using less fertilizer and that in that way they can still grow and using precision technologies, you know, to use less at the right time in the right place. Um, but the problem with both of these ideas is, you know, they're not, they're taking up space where you could have other more transformative nature-friendly farming really coming into policy making um, and targets and again you know coming back to this change in diets and thinking about who is eating this meat who is consuming these dairy products and you know where does the responsibility lie for bringing down those emissions and also another of these controversial terms which is maybe surprising for most of, people, of our listeners, is regenerative agriculture, right? Why is this controversial? Right, so regenerative agriculture in and of itself is, of course, like not a bad thing. In fact, it's a great thing. So this is a term that, you know, has really been co-opted from you know, the organic farming movement and also, you know, elements of permaculture. And as I'm sure your listeners will already know, you know, this is a good concept. It's based on the idea of restoring the soil um, and improving the environment, like a less destructive um, way of farming. And that can involve techniques like no-till or using cover crops. And it's a way to cut air pollution, restore the soils and, you know, boost biodiversity and animal habitats. So that all sounds great, right? But as often with these terms, it's not necessarily the technique in itself, it's how it's used or the context in which it's used and I think it's fair to say that the term regenerative agriculture which you know big corporations have really doubled down on this term in the lead up to COP28 but also before that is that this is like a cheapened not very holistic version of regenerative agriculture mm. so one of the problems number one <laughs> quite a big problem is that it's really overhyped as a solution to climate change. So the idea that this will bring down your emissions as a company that brings in these practices is that they it's hinged on the idea of storing carbon in the soil. So you might hear terms like, you know, carbon farming or soil sequestration. Um, but the science around that is actually very uncertain. It's unclear like how much soil is saved by doing this, you're farming in this different way. Uh, but also even if it worked, it can be wiped out in an instant. So farmers could not plough for two years and then plough and then the carbon would be released from the soil, right? Or you could have an extreme weather event or erosion or land use change. So that's one big problem. Will it actually reduce emissions? I mean, it has other positive effects, but not necessarily mitigating climate change. And the other problem is that it's just too vague So that's quite easy then for companies to kind of say that they're taking action, but it's not clearly defined. And I guess the third problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that everybody has kind of cottoned on to this term and they use it in their net zero plans. So McDonald's, which, you know, emits more than American Airlines, if you think about its whole supply chain by some estimates, 
is running, you know, a few kind of regenerative agriculture trials. And it is mentioned in its net zero plan already as one of the things it's doing. But if you think about it logically, McDonald's whole business model is built around rearing like vast numbers of cattle and vast that the sheer numbers of them is the thing that makes it cheap, right, for consumers at the other end of the supply chain in the fast food restaurants. So if you were going to practice regenerative agriculture, that means more land, more water. How on earth would McDonald's be able to bring something like that in? It just doesn't fit with their like highly productive system. But it isn't just McDonald's talking about its Nestle, Carlsberg, PepsiCo, lots of brands. And just to clarify, what do they mean exactly by net zero? So yes, the idea of net zero is that by the time you reach the date, you know, that you set as your target, you will be breaking even in terms of the amount of carbon that you emit and the amount of carbon that you save. So people can, you know, buy carbon offsets or do practices like invest in projects, say, to restore wetlands and store carbon that way to kind of balance out their emissions. So they're not saying they're going to be a zero emissions company. That's impossible, but they are saying they will, you know, strip out as much as they can from their operations and then sort of offset by investing in positive practices um, to store carbon. Yeah, and also, as you said, like the whole concept of like storing carbon, oh, it's a bit uh, yeah, how well can we store carbon for how long? So the whole concept of net zero, then it doesn't stand, right? Yeah, so that, that's also a problem with, for example, offsets. You know, so you could plant, anyway, the, the, the numbers don't add up. I think, you know, Shell's plan inv would involve, you know, if they were to plant the amount of trees to offset their emissions that they are talking about, it would require, you know, the whole landmass of Brazil, you know, for those trees. So the, the kind of, it does not really based on reality, but, you know, the trouble with tree planting as well, There are many problems with it. But if you partly thinking about whose land you're planting the trees on, for starters, but you can plant trees, they can suck carbon out of the atmosphere, sure, and then a forest fire could just, you know, release it in a moment. So the best way to, you know, reduce emissions is to cut them in from production, not hope to mop them up later. And also another term that it's related with this uh, regenerative agriculture um, concept is sustainable intensification. Could you tell us something about sustainable intensification and also how does this and also how does regenerative agriculture differ from agroecology? Yes, so there was a report from Friends of the Earth a couple of years ago and the Transnational Institute and they called sustainable intensification, uh, junk agroecology. So that was their take on it. But I can see why, you know, again, they felt the term had been sort of co-opted, you know, with the best things kind of taken out of it <laughs> and only kind of gentle principles applied that didn't really change anything. But really when it comes to sustainable intensification and agroecology, you're really talking about two visions of farming, And sustainable intensification 
is really this idea that industrial farming, this model we have, which has been so productive but so damaging, can continue to grow and indeed must grow to feed a growing population. And it hinges on the idea that we can do more or increase yields, but at the same time causing less ecological damage. Um, And so it builds on these efficiency and intensity arguments that we talked about before. But it also brings in a new line that's more aligned with the sustainable development goals. And that's claims that this way of farming and producing food will also tackle deep-rooted issues like hunger, food insecurity um, and poverty. So the kind of things that this idea will be associated with in practice is getting chemical fertilizers and inputs to farmers in the global south, helping them to access markets and maybe some kind of environmentally friendly farming methods thrown in as well. Now, agroecology, by contrast, is offering like a more holistic vision, which also thinks about power. So agroecology also talks about increasing yields, but through like nature-friendly methods, you know, cutting harmful inputs and making like a wholesale shift to like different nature-friendly ways of farming, also thinking about healthier and more diverse diets and thinking about power in the food system. I would like to mention that the slow food movement promotes agroecology as a means to ensure universal access to a nutrient-rich, culture-friendly diet that can preserve biodiversity and natural resources. Agroecology is a holistic and integrated approach that applies ecological and social concepts to the design and management of sustainable agriculture and food systems. More than just a set of agricultural practices, it can play an important role in changing social relationships, empowering farmers and privileging short productive chains. Now let's move to our next guest, Kavya Chaudhry. Welcome to the podcast, Kavya. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valentina. Thank you for having us here. Kavya is a researcher with ETC, the Action Group on Erosion Technology and Concentration. She's co-author of the report Food Barons 2022, Crisis Profiteering, Digitalization and Shifting Power, together with Hope Shend and Kathy Jo Weather. I wanted to start with asking you what are food barons? Like, what does it mean? Uh, if you can briefly describe the food barons report findings. Yes, food barons are the biggest most massive corporations in industrial food and agriculture. ETC Group's research in the last 40 years has shown how companies have consolidated over time and gotten bigger in size and fewer in number. So for example, in commercial seeds, 25 years ago, around 10 companies control 40% of the commercial seed market. While today it's just two companies that control 40% Yeah, that's the extent of the change that has happened in 25 years. And these few and big companies that have immense power over the food that we eat, the health of our planet, our environment, and of course they need to be challenged, are the food barons. Other examples would be Syngenta, which controls approximately a quarter of the agrochemicals market share um, in 2020, while Bayer controlled... 16% of the agrochemical sector and 23% of the commercial seed sector. 
For the ag machinery sector, you have John Deere, which controls 17% of the sector. And then the top four companies, which along with Deere are Kubota, CNH, and Echo, which control uh, around 44% of the sector. One sector which actually is not as noticed um, as the sectors that I previously mentioned is the livestock genetics sector. So just three companies actually control commercial poultry genetics globally, making it the most concentrated sector in the industrial food chain. And many of the players in livestock genetics are actually privately held. So yes, I mean, these are some of the food barons, the biggest companies that exercise undue control over what we eat, what is produced, and the health of our planet. Could you give us an example of how they control the food system? Yes. Um, well, because these companies have so much power, they can fix prices to extract value from both farmers and consumers. They can control supply of their products. They can price out competitors. They can also hamper local and farmer-led innovation and even impede the growth of local industries and community enterprises. And it's largely these massive and very few companies which have been formed after a string of mergers and acquisitions over the decades that possess the resources now to do research and development in agriculture and dictate the research and development priorities, especially in the context of a decline in public spending on R&D. While smaller companies and public research institutions do not have the resources to shape global R&D priorities, which has an impact on the inputs available to farmers as well. And, um, and also there is like a term that I find uh, super interesting in the report and also in the title of the report, which is crisis profiteering. So can you tell us how are these food barons taking advantage of the current crisis? So, for example, of COVID-19, the Ukraine war, climate change? Yeah, so these companies used inflation arising from multiple crises to increase their prices disproportionately and profit while everyone was in misery. And it's important to know that as the world focuses on these factors, the ones that you mentioned, um, like the pandemic, the war and so on, we ignore uh, the real reason behind the price increases, which is corporate consolidation which essentially means that fewer companies are holding a larger market share. So the pandemic, the war, and other crises are actually being used as a diversion, a distraction from highlighting the increasing corporate consolidation in sectors across the industrial food chain, which is often not mentioned behind the price rise. Yeah, that's really interesting and really sad as well. No? And I think also for us as consumers, it's very difficult to understand when a price is has been jacked up or when not right because we associate it to crisis but then in the end it's just companies that decide to raise these prices yeah if you're interested in knowing more about how companies are influencing food prices and taking advantage of moment of crisis i suggest you to listen to our podcast episode slow food goes brussels the global food crisis explained which we published in july 2022 
and I also have another question because in our previous conversation with Hazel Eli from The Smog, we talked about a net zero targets. And in the Food Barons report, you also mentioned an interest by meat companies in plant-based alternatives as a contribution to their net zero objective. So maybe could you explain to us a bit more about this as well? Yeah, so a lot of these big meat companies are responsible for greenhouse gas emissions, destruction of rainforests, and really terrible working conditions. And perhaps they see their investments in alternative protein as a way of somewhat um, addressing these concerns in the future. And they've invested uh, a lot in uh, some of these startups that are working on different kinds of all proteins. And these all-protein activities could also uh, get them maybe some carbon credits, some uh, way of looking more environmentally responsible. And at the same time, we have to remember that there are many governments who are thinking of investing in alt-proteins um, as a way of ensuring food security. But at the same time, we should remember that these alt-proteins can be really unsustainable too especially when the ingredients come from monoculture, from pesticide-intensive crops. And it's very hard to scale these technologies up. And it's quite energy-intensive um, to scale them up. And a lot of times, uh, what is not mentioned is that a lot of these fake meat are grown from animals themselves. So, yeah, it's, it's not as environmentally sustainable as it's painted to be. And um, what are the implications on farmers and especially small-scale farmers and fishers in these food systems that are controlled by food barons? Um, these companies have developed technologies, so for example, genetically modified crops or herbicides like glyphosate, which have had an adverse impact on human health and the environment. And when farmers are pushed or encouraged to switch to commercial crops, They're faced with increasing farm input costs, uncertainty if they'll be able to make a profit or even cover their costs. And in the case of growing new commercial crops, farmers are also not able to draw from their experience and knowledge bases of the crops they've always grown. So there's an erosion of traditional knowledge as well. There's an erosion of seed diversity as farmers say seeds are replaced by patented commercial seeds. There's water and soil pollution. Plus, um, these trends in increasing corporate consolidation have also caused increasing farmer indebtedness, which has led farmers to do suicides, right? So, the, yes, the implications are quite serious. Thank you, Kavya. And are there any particularities with the food barons operating in the European Union? Uh, what are some implications in terms of European policymaking and lobbying, for example? Yes, so... Um, The EU has somewhat strict regulations on the food barons in terms of competition policies, food standards. But, you know, the focus is still on industrial food systems. And there are uh, subsidies given to these giant companies as well. Perhaps one characteristic would be that the efforts put by these European companies in greenwashing their emissions their environmental impact was probably a bit more than others. They're quite intent on introducing even more techno fixes to the environmental damage that they've already caused. 
And that's because these companies are also coming under increased scrutiny, right? Uh, because of all the greenhouse gas emissions that they've made over the years, aside from the other kind of environmental impacts like water pollution, soil pollution, and so on. Um, coming to lobbying, I understand that there's research on the massive amounts that's spent by companies like BASF, Bayer, Yara for a range of things like against um, more stringent regulations on really toxic, harmful chemicals, for fracking and so on. Yeah. To conclude this podcast with a concrete call to action, I've asked our guests to give us a few recommendations as European citizens to be more under control of what and how we eat. Yes, so we know that meat causes twice the pollution of plant-based foods. So an easy one is to minimize meat or make it a treat or cut it out altogether. Um, same for dairy products. Hazel Healy. But I think you can also have... You know, guiding principles like food that you eat that's closer to home or is growing at that time of year. I think also, you know, if you eat sardines rather than salmon, which is fed on sardine type fishes, you know, that kind of efficiency, I guess, the same for farmed fish as for farmed meat. But I would also say that, as we've heard today, you know, these are political issues There's going to be, in the last COP27, there were 160 delegates from food and farming, uh, kind of big food and farming corporations, uh, and that had doubled from the year before. So, you know, these are arguments that will be being used um, in policy, speaking to um, representatives of government. So I think because these are political issues, I think to be active food citizens is also about, um, you know, demanding or advocating for like a better, more ecologically sound food system and trying to bring that about. Kavya Chowdhury. I think one of the things to fight for is the adoption of global competition policies, which account for the new kind of anti-competitive practices that we see today. For example, those enabled by digitization. An everyday example is predatory pricing or deep discounting by e-commerce platforms. And a lot of these food barons are actually using their digital platforms to form alliances with each other and partnerships so that they can share and sell really valuable data pertaining to producers, consumers, the entire industrial food chain with each other. And strengthening their already powerful position in the market, right? And, and then you have horizontal shareholding, which is the practice of owning assets in multiple corporations that are actually supposed to be competing with each other, but are unlikely to compete if they have common owners. And these common owners are largely asset managers like BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity. We might have heard of these names, right? And these asset managers are slowly becoming share owners in big food and ag companies, which might reduce the incentive of these food barons to compete with each other. So these kind of practices go under the radar of the current competition policies that we have. And these policies really need to be updated. Um, another thing that can be done is for penalties on negative environmental impacts, 
But the thing is that we already have laws and regulations across the world that penalize the negative impacts of corporate practices on the environment. But people should fight for the implementation of these policies and recognize the role of impacted communities in the implementation of these laws and regulations. There should definitely be more support for agroecology and people should oppose the deregulation of GMOs that is happening currently in the EU. People should be able to assess the technologies that are pushed by these companies and they should be able to say yes or no to the kind of technologies that are promoted uh, by the food barons. And of course, we should be careful and mindful of where our food is coming from and who's paying the price. A lot of the times it is the global south that pays the price of the food of global north um, in terms of human rights violations, environmental degradation and many other aspects. Let's thank again Hazel Yidi from The Smog and Kavya Chaudhry from the ETC Group, as they have clearly explained to us a lot about greenwashing and corporate power. And now it's up to us to be careful not to adopt false solutions that serve only to ensure that money and power remain firmly in the hands of the people we know. If you want to be updated about current advocacy topics around food, we suggest you follow Slow Food Europe on Twitter. You will find the link in the podcast description. If you liked this episode, remember to share it with your friends and give us a good rating or review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or if you have any suggestions for us, reach out to podcast at slowfood.it or via our Telegram group. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. <laughs>